Privet, Janina. Hello, I still can't say that. Privet. <laughs> I don't know how my pronunciation is, but I enjoy to say it that way. I mean, it's better than yeah. mine. Um, so, good for you, uh, I guess. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Uh, I'll take that. How is married life? Married life is pretty good. I've been married for a week and a day now. Um, it's largely the same, except now I um, say things like, I can't believe my husband would do this to me whenever Connor puts a <laughs> mug in the wrong place. Yeah. <laughs> That's really what you do it for. That's what you get the, the certificate for. So you can say stuff I like did, that. I did spend um, quite a long time telling people that I'd been given a certificate for my relationship um, <laughs> because... I find it really funny, <laughs> as if I won a prize. <laughs> I've got a certificate about it. <laughs> I mean, you did. You won the married yeah. prize, and no one can take that away from you. No one can take it away from me. It's pretty great. I'm enjoying it a lot, so I highly recommend it. And everybody's very nice to you when you get married. Everyone tells you you look good. So. That's the best. Yeah. Um, so if you ever want people to just tell you that you look very beautiful, regardless of what you're doing or wearing, then... Um, get married. Get married, yeah. Have a day of it. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to do it again next year so we can actually have a wedding and insist yeah. that everybody reiterate that I look great. <laughs> I will spend the next year workshopping compliments. So Thank that you. At the party, I can do you proud. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> I do. I appreciate that you would put that effort in. Um, <laughs> what are we here to talk about today, Janina? We're here to talk about Rasputin. Yes. The beardiest man of all time. So beardy, so thin, with his little eyes staring out of his massive beard. You Um, know, my my high school history teacher looked a little bit like Rasputin if he was incredibly well-kept with an impeccably trimmed beard and always wore a three-piece suit. Wow. Um, I don't think that Rasputin ever wore a three-piece suit. No, I don't think he did, but he should have. It was a very good look. Um, he did also definitely never trimmed his beard or used a beard oil like it's no if anything his beard is a disgrace to beards it's very looks dry Mm, it's a thirsty beard mm, it's a thirsty beard needs some oil in there needs some moisturizer or something yeah you know what you do to a beard but it's dry um and his hair so greasy yeah it's um strange and yet he was russia's greatest love machine Allegedly Russia's greatest love machine, according to, in fact, his daughter. (laughs) Which is, Um, I just, not the direction you want that claim to come from, I don't think. It's an unexpected direction. And yet, of the kind of things that I have read, the one that is most keen on him being Russia's greatest love machine is, in fact, his daughter. um, Who tells a huge amount of stories of his giant penis, uh, how great (laughs) his penis is, how women just throw themselves at him of his yeah of his sexual conquests left right and center and how he is just powerfully sexy which is weird to write about your dad it's extremely strange to write about your dad i'm not i don't love that her grasp on reality is limited it must be difficult to grow up the daughter of a self-described mystical healer yeah a man of god and um yeah and she adores him like completely and utterly adores the ground that he walks on and everything he ever said and did. Um, and on the other hand, I read uh, Felix Yusupov's biography, mm-hmm. Lost Splendor, which he wrote after he was exiled from Russia to Paris. What a trial. <laughs> it's 
especially if you're Yusupov, I feel like, oh no, I have to go live in Paris? Oh, <laughs> I know. Oh dear. <laughs> um, but in comparison to the like several houses that they owned around Russia, now he was living in a house he didn't even own. Oh. And he had never had a job. And now he had to make some money rather than just be very, very rich. That is a shame. And the only thing that he had going for him, really, other than being pretty, was that he, everybody knew that he had been the person or one of the people who murdered Rasputin. So he really played up on that. He wrote two biographies. Uh, so this is this is the sort of situation that if he if it happened today, he would just be selling his story over and over again to whatever tabloid would take yeah. it. Yeah, he'd be on every possible documentary. He'd go on, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Absolutely, yes. Mm. Uh, Celebrity, Big Brother, all of them. But (laughs) this is basically his version of that. And so um, he tells this version of his life, which is like, oh, wow, being the younger brother aristocrat as a member of... He's basically a member... I'd say he is a member of the royal family. Like, the royal family seems to have an infinite number of members as far as I can tell. Yeah. Every single person in St. Petersburg was a member of the royal family. <laughs> and they're all called Countess Sophie. Um, <laughs> they're all countesses and dukes, and pr- there's about 400 princes, um, mm-hmm. and they're all somehow related to one another. And he is the born the younger brother, which means that he doesn't have to do anything because there is nothing on his shoulders at all. He doesn't have to run anything. He just gets to have money. And it's like that Father Ted joke of like the older brother becomes a doctor and the younger brother goes into the priesthood. Um, (laughs) Except the older brother has to inherit the family name and is going to carry it all on and has to be responsible. And the younger brother can just absolutely shag his way around and do a lot of interior decorating around Europe. I'm very excited to get to the interior decorating. <laughs> um, and then all of a sudden he murders Rasputin, which Amazing. is unexpected, to be honest. Um, <laughs> you don't you don't think your life is going to take you to a place like that, but then you never know. But the, who knows? I know life is, and we can say the same about Rasputin, who spent twenty eight years of his life as a peasant. Yeah, um, or roughly twenty eight, because no one seems to know when he was born. Uh, Douglas. So I read two biographies. One is um, Douglas Smith the biography of Rasputin, which is very good. Um, And he is a scholar and he spent a lot of time going through newly opened archives after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, And he has a lot of information based on uh, birth records and death records and um and things like that mm-hmm. and the other one i read was the untold story rasputin the untold story which is by joseph t Furman, um and is a bit more credulous to be honest <laughs> he has not gone through any archives particularly and is more more interested in a story than anything else. I read um I read To Kill Rasputin by Andrew Cook, which is very fun because it just reports a lot of things about how Rasputin could magically cure things. And then yes. at the end of it he'll say, But everyone else who was around at this time claimed that this was Bunkum <laughs> <laughs> which is a fun way to read it, you know? It's a fun, I, I mean it's a, a fun way to tell it. Um <laughs> 
Yeah. So in general, when I've got a conflict, I've decided I'm going with Douglas Smith because he has footnotes. Um, <laughs> Always go with the one that has footnotes. And he more, seems more trustworthy to me. Yeah. Um, he does, however, like Rasputin quite a lot. Um, he obviously <laughs> developed... a damning like, indictment. Not necessarily, because I think that it's probably better that he likes him than thinks that he's a literal devil. Mm. Um, but he I, he does seem to think that Rasputin was a sincerely religious person and that he was a... that everything he did came from a place of sincerity. Um, and he is quite sympathetic towards Rasputin. And he thinks that Yusupov is a cunt. <laughs> right. He, hates Yusufov. Whereas he... we are we are pretty firmly team Yusufov <laughs> over here at History of Six. <laughs> we are. Um, because Yusufov is active. I don't disagree with him. He does at one point uh, call him a monstrous coward. Sure. Uh, but that's fine. Which... Aren't we all? <laughs> Aren't we all? Which I do find very funny. Um, and he does think he just really dislikes Yusufov a lot and everything about everything he's written. <laughs> Which I find quite funny. So he's coming up from that, whereas okay. I am, yes, Yusupov is a monstrous coward and probably a cunt. 100%, but, but I love him. Also very fun. <laughs> I think my favourite part of this whole thing is Yusupov's behaviour after he killed Rasputin. Which we will just get to. Which um, we will get to. But just embarrassing behaviour. Just um, super embarrassing. You are a grown man. <laughs> <laughs> but we will start with Rasputin. Yeah, so the plan is we're going to talk about Rasputin's life, a little bit about Yusupov's life, and then about the big dramatic point where the two meet and only one life continues. Yeah. Mm. So according to Douglas Smith, Grigory Rasputin uh, was born to Yefim Rasputin and Anna Parshakova uh, on the 9th of January, 1869. And his dad is like, uh, it's about as good as a peasant gets. Yeah, he could afford glass for the windows, apparently. He had glass on his windows. Um, He owned his own cows. Yeah. He had a stable with horses in it. He was doing great for the, a peasant. Um, the village they lived in, which is called Praskovye, or Praskovye yep. in Siberia, was on both a main highway and a river. So uh, I think as an area of the of uh, an area that was predominantly peasants, it was considerably more, they tended to be a bit more well off than in general over yeah. most of Russia because they had these two thoroughfares going through yes and this is he was born eight years after the emancipation edict so he is the first generation of people to of russian peasants to benefit from everything that we talked about last year last week which is all of the stuff with new train lines being built and people having more freedom of movement and uh, people being able to talk to each other much more openly and write without um, with their censorship and a gradual introduction of rule of law and things like that. So he is the first kind of generation to benefit from that. Not that he does for the first 20 odd years of his life, unless one believes his daughter, who believe, who writes all of these amazing, like just straight up fictional stories. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so this is his second child who lives he gets married at 18 and he has seven children of which three live to like past childhood um and maria is his eldest daughter and his favorite 
and she writes this biography of him which has him on page eight i found this in a charity shop in hollywood uh, <laughs> just outside of Bangor, in um and might be the greatest thing i've ever found in my life <laughs> on page eight uh, mm-hmm. baby Grig- grigori grishka uh magically heals a horse i mean that's pretty impressive yes it is he lays his hand he is a child he gets up from the dinner table because his father is complaining that the horse is injured and he goes and lays his hand on the horse and then uh, the horse is magically cured. This is around this time that there were also stories that he's like mystically able to find lost things or stolen things and if, yep. if someone is missing a livestock he can tell you exactly who stole it. Um, which I'm assuming eight years old. these stories also just exclusively from Maria. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And therefore, they cannot entirely come from Rasputin himself because she tells quite a detailed version of his death, which includes dialogue. <laughs> um, so from that, I I uh, infer that she has just made up quite a lot of stuff in her head. Yeah. But she, yes, so he does that. He is saintly in Maria's version and in a lot of people's versions from effectively birth. Um, he goes around healing people, he finds magical things, he is mystical, he sees visions of the Virgin Mary, he has dreams of saints, um, and he is never focused on his work in the farm because he is so godly, um, and so his eyes are turned towards heaven. Uh, and then my favourite bit happens on page 20, that page 20 was a bit where I decided this was the best book I'd ever read, (laughs) and... Uh, possibly the best book ever written uh, because I might read it to you Please actually because it's just so good um, it's like something out of an action movie so um, Grishka mm-hmm. little Rasputin is 14 years old um, and his mother thinks he doesn't play with other boys enough and he spends too much time by himself so she sends him out to a field to play with his friends he doesn't have any friends because he's odd but she sends him out and he tries to play um, near some boys who are playing with the ball. That's the best way to, to get friends is just to be near people, I found. Um, and they don't like the look of him, so they tell him to go away. He says, oh, I'm not doing you any harm. I just want to play nearby. And they say, if you want to stay, you have to fight. And the leader raises his fists. When Grishka made no move, the boy, now overflowing with confidence, struck out with his fist. A blow papa turned aside with a quick upthrust of his arm. Frustrated by the failure of his first attack, the boy lashed out wildly, and as papa told me, he did not think this was the time to turn the other cheek. He saw an opening between his opponent's madly flailing arms... <laughs> And with one well-placed blow, felled his assailant like a stricken ox. (laughs) As the boy sprawled on his back, the only movement, a slight twitching of his eyelids, his companions encouraged each other to avenge their fallen leader. It was just a lucky punch, cried one, and the other replied, He's no fighter. Boris will feel better if we finish the Maladushni off. That's coward. They bore in upon Papa from both sides, but remaining cool in the face of their blind rage, he made short work of them. With all three of his attackers rendered hors de combat, he left the field to the vanquished, troubled by his unwanted pugnacity, for he had actually enjoyed the brief battle. <laughs> she is a great writer. <laughs> she is. Say what you will about uh, the reliability. It's a ripping yarn. 
It is she and all of her stories are like that. They're brilliant. <laughs> this is the kind of story that you get from Maria about her uh, her father's childhood, <laughs> <laughs> and it is brilliant. The other stories that you get are more of the Yusupov side, which is that he was a uh, drunk from the age of about two, um, <laughs> constantly getting into fights, uh, and a horse thief, which Yusupov says very, like, as soon as he introduces Rasputin to his story, he's like, Rasputin has long hair and little eyes, and he has a big scar on his head, which he got while he was trying to steal a horse. <laughs> um, which... It's like as far away from Maria's version of events as you can. Uh, and the reason that I like Douglas Smith is that he went and looked into this and he found uh, one of the very few things that anybody ever... Ch- like, somebody was sent to check on Rasputin before he was assassinated, like when he was rising to power. Um, and a account of that remains because they checked like the local records, local arrest records, mm-hmm. and they didn't show ID. And the person who was in charge of the local arrest records was fined at five rubles for giving information to people who hadn't proven their identity. So that's how we know about that trip, because that was recorded. <laughs> it's nice the little details that remain. It is, and the information that was handed over to them was that in 1884, Rasputin had been sentenced to two days in jail for having a rude attitude. (laughs) That is a great crime. Yes, Uh, and he had been suspected of some small thefts, but nobody could had ever really done anything about it. Um, So it appears that a rude attitude is the extent of, (laughs) of Rasputin's Actual childhood, mm. just a normal child, probably, unless you want to believe the healing thing. Personally, I do want to, but I am yeah. not going to. A significant it. problem with Maria Rasputin's um, story is that a lot of that chapter is also about the terribly sad death of Rasputin's brother, Mishka, mm. um, who falls into a river and then dies of pneumonia they both fall into the river don't they and then um yeah but but Mishka gets sick uh but the birth records demonstrate that there was never a brother oh really yes all the other children are <laughs> i am doubting the veracity of the biographies i read more and more and it's delightful <laughs> <laughs> uh according to doggy smith no brother okay um uh, this is a story that Rasputin happily told about himself, but when the birth records of the village were checked, there is no brother. Huh. I, so there you I go. Do, uh, it does seem pretty clear that Rasputin himself was uh, frequently lied about himself in that lots of the doubt around his age and his date of birth came from the fact that every time he mentioned his own age, he seemed to have aged five years in the space of one. Um, yes. So that's yeah. fine. If, if, if he's not a reliable, reliable source on himself. He's not a reliable source on anything, bless him, and definitely <laughs> not himself. Um, he tells all kinds of stories um, about things that he did. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of stories leave out, again, Maria's great stories. Is it about? So he gets married at 18. He has seven children. Mm-hmm. Um, several of them die. He Living with his dad, he never owns his own house um, or moves out of his father's house he just moves his wife in they have a a seemingly perfectly normal life for 25 to 30 years somewhere in that region Mm -hmm. um and then all of a sudden he just takes off 
to become a pilgrim. He just goes marching off into the wilds of Siberia one day <laughs> and doesn't come back for two years. And this changes everything. It's a weird thing to do. It is not common, no. Uh, it's very, very uncommon to march out and become a pilgrim. Being a pilgrim is not, like, massively uncommon. Mm -hmm. um, people who walk around Russia and are, like, looking for some kind of spiritual, I don't know, spiritual fulfilment in aestheticism and walking really far and going from monastery to monastery... Mm -hmm are relatively common they're called straniki but having a wife and children at home who you go home to every so often is less common normally people give up everything yeah it's either one or the other you're either he, a family man or or a pilgrim yeah he would like to be both thank you very much mm. and maria's version of this is quite a lot of chapters of her father just shagging every woman that he comes across <laughs> And having every man that he comes across attempt to rape him. Wow. Because he is so sexually attractive. That no that... one can keep their hands off him. And there's one story which is amazing, which is that... So it's kind of accepted in rural Russia that when a pilgrim comes through, that someone will probably give them lodging. Like, they'll let them sleep in their living room and they'll feed them. Mm. Um, and it's kind of part of the part of kind of religious life is that every so often somebody's going to have to feed a pilgrim and that's fine but all of these stories of him like turning up and then he has dinner with the husband and wife and the wife is like practically pulling down her top and winking at him over dinner mm -hmm. um and then everybody goes to bed and he sleeps in the living room and they go to the bedroom and then the wife comes out of the bedroom mm -hmm. um and has sex with him in the living room while going shh don't wake my husband and then goes back to bed and apparently Grishka is powerless to <laughs> do anything about the fact that every woman who goes anywhere near him just immediately drops her trousers. Sure. Um, just knickers in the air. Just at his, the sight of him. Just at the, the sheer sight of his tiny little eyes uh, boring <laughs> into their soul. That's Maria's version of events. Um, other versions of events are much more like oh he went from monastery to monastery and walked a lot and went for a whole year where he didn't change his shirt and six months where he didn't touch his body apparently I don't believe that is possible I don't really know I feel like that like how are you going to the loo I mean yes uh, but also like how are you sitting down <laughs> just, just like not letting your hands fall into your lap or something i mean again another point I, I feel like didn't touch his body might be a euphemism for something oh he didn't have a wank yeah unless you believe maria which is that he didn't have a wank because literally every minute of every day there was constantly a woman on his penis yes <laughs> Um, but she also tells quite a lot of stories. Uh, but, so he goes to a, uh, a monastery, a quite famous monastery in Siberia. Um, at uh, I'm, I do not trust my pronunciation of this, but it's Verkhaturi or Verkhaturiye. Mm -hmm. um, and he goes to this monastery. It's quite famous, and he is kind of tries out monastic life. And other versions of his life are like, oh, it wasn't really for him. Um, he felt that it was sinful there. He felt they all liked themselves too much. And he thought that he didn't like the strictures of monastic life. Uh, Maria's version of events has a bunch of monks breaking into his cell in order to attempt to have sex with him uh, forcibly if necessary. 
due to the fact that he is so powerfully attractive to men and women um, and he has to flee in the night in order to get away from them i believe this happens him more than once in flee Maria's in the night but i don't think that that would have been the reason <laughs> no um i am obsessed uh with maria's version of her father's life because it is just not she believes that her father is a genuine not just a, a holy man but possibly jesus sure yeah she doesn't say it outright but she does imply it quite heavily uh several times including in the epilogue which i'm not decided if i'm going to save it for the next episode yet or not because it's amazing um but she implies very heavily that she thinks and therefore she thinks that she is like the daughter of god i, I mean um, i guess that's the logical conclusion yeah and i don't um, approve of that because that's what got us a monarchy and i don't believe in monarchy. <laughs> um but nonetheless, Rasputin spends these years, um, it's about a decade in all, um, going walking around Siberia and then further into central Russia, um, visiting, take, doing pilgrimages to various different churches and monasteries and seminaries and talking to people and seems to have been very good at talking to people, basically. This seems to be his his best his charismatic mm. like his a charismatic in the most um like what's the word i'm looking for in 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 the manner that he really he leaves an impact on everybody he meets whether they mm-hmm. are freaked out by him or whether they um are think that he is genuinely holy he, he is a distinctive like, strong personality he's a real strong personality and he treats everybody the same which rich people find hilarious uh, <laughs> um or disgusting depending on how bored they are with life but we'll get to that yeah and at this point a room i don't know if these are post rumors or pre-rumors or at the time rumors uh but he was rumored to be involved with the uh the Clisty sect which i think yes. he always denied but there he were did. always rumors with the Clisty sect uh was Super shocking to the Orthodox Church because they basically believed that there's no point in repenting unless you've really got something worth repenting for. Um, <laughs> so you may as well. So you may as well sin it the fuck up, um, so that your prayers are are you know big and important. Um, which certainly seems to go in line with Rasputin's personal values. Of- yes, it does seem to be, and this is something that follows him throughout his life. There is a. Um, essay by a russian writer called teffy mm-hmm. who was a russian journalist um and her essays were translated a few years ago by pushkin um i will put a link to this in the um in the show notes because it's an interesting read um mm-hmm. so she had been kind of exiled um and so she wrote about her experiences um in uh, living in Russia from exile and she wrote about the time that she met Rasputin um, just a year-ish before he died uh, where basically he is invited to a meeting of writers and journalists uh, who are trying very hard to pretend that they are not writers and journalists uh-huh. um, because understandable who wants to talk to writers and journalists yeah, because and also because the press hated Rasputin pretty much from the moment that he entered 
um, imperial life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that only became worse. And so they thought that if he was a... They knew that they were all journalists and writers, that he wouldn't talk to them. And what they really want him to do is to talk about erotic things. <laughs> and she is the only unmarried woman there. So they make her sit next to him at dinner. And he, she thinks he is kind of creepy um and a bit not with it like he seems to be distracted and all over the place and doesn't really and possibly is just very drunk um Mm -hmm. he keeps like trying to touch her shoulder and tell her that he's going to come and visit her and talk to her about her love life and on the other side of her is the guy who (laughs) invited everybody to the party who just keeps saying get him to talk about sex get him to talk about (laughs) (laughs) uh Make him speak louder um, <laughs> because they are desperate for him to um, shed some gossip and they keep asking him if he is a member of this sex. Or they don't want to ask him, but they want him to talk about it without them explicitly asking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just really funny the way that they keep pushing her in front of him in the hope that he will fall in love with her and then suddenly do all of the sexy sex things that they have heard that he will do. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is just like he just keeps touching my shoulder and talking nonsense <laughs> and then he does a dance um, like he has his own he has this entourage of people that he takes with him like a secretary um, and this like handmaid who sort of carries everything for him and he has these three musicians that he brings everywhere with him as well mm-hmm. um, and they all of a sudden they start to Um, play some music and he just gets up and does a massive dance for like two minutes and then sits down. (laughs) He's living his best life. He does seem to be living a great life. Yeah. Um, But they are very... um, They keep asking him about the the clists and he keeps saying i don't know what you're talking about yeah um but they he keeps saying don't you write for this journal and they keep going i don't know what you're talking about i'm just a random <laughs> person who really wants to hear about your involvement with the clists it's basically t- a series of encounters between two people who know pr- very well that the other one is lying to them um <laughs> and are unwilling to <laughs> It's very funny. It's like that one episode of friends where phoebe is trying to get chandler to admit that he's sleeping with monica Yes, mm. um, and everybody knows everybody else is lying um, and they're just staring at each other. And he, there's this whole thing where he he keeps putting his hand on her shoulder and then saying, you shall come to see me. Um, and she goes, no, I don't think I will. <laughs> and then every time he says, I don't think I will, Rasputin like shudders and flinches back. Um, and she says later she talks to a mesmerist and asks him what that was about. And he says that um, when you are being a mesmerist that you are you try to push all your love your energy into the person that you're trying to uh, hypnotize and then you need to be touching them in order to do that and then when they when they're closed off when they rebuff your energy then it rebounds back to you tenfold and that it was his mesmerist energy bouncing back into him um Mm. which was hurting him um so that's the kind of thing that people said about him uh, to his face <laughs> uh, so it seems that his and it seems that this uh, reputation that he has as a person who is a sexy sex person and a kind of dark mystic comes immediately as soon as he gets in with um, the imperial family 
mm-hmm. which happens in a weird way, to be honest. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, um, it starts, I understand, with a bishop, which seems strange. <laughs> yeah. There's a trail of bishops until he ends up with the bishop who is the Tsarina's confessor, Bishop Feofen. Yes, it's a great name. Great name. Uh, yeah, and Feofen likes him very much. A fair fan is the rector of the St. Petersburg Theological Seminary. That's pretty impressive. And you can make a place rector, to be a rector. I hardly knew her. <laughs> uh, I can't believe it's taken us this many episodes to get a hardly knower into this show. <laughs> so there you go. Um, yes, and then he is also the personal confessor of a woman called Militia who is also known as one of the black princesses. So they are two, uh, I want to say Moldovan, but it's not Moldovan. It is Montenegrin princesses mm-hmm. um, who are their two sisters and they are married to two brothers who are both grand dukes. And they are, the grand dukes are members of the, yet more members of the Romanov family. Sure. Um, they live in Russia and they are really obsessed with the occult. Um they introduce a lot of um, European occult stuff into Russia. They first introduce a guy called uh, Philippe Nezia Vashud, who is usually called Monsieur, Monsieur Philippe, um, uh, who is a, a, like a cultist um, into Russia and then introduced him to the... Tsar and Tsarina and for about a year he was around kind of being a spiritual leader for them but he was not Russian Orthodox mm-hmm. uh, and then they met Rasputin through through Fiafan, um and then it was through dinner with uh, Militia and her husband then they invited Rasputin to meet the Tsar and Tsarina mm-hmm. but they're basically really into much you know it's this turn of the Century, all of that, Madam, uh, yeah. what's her name? Blatovsky and all of that kind of thing is really in the air and they're very into it. Magic I think it, it's and... it's worth it's worth mentioning that like a fascination with the occult at this point in history is not exclusive to Russia and Russian society. This stuff like this was happening all around. Like this is this oh, is yeah. this is there was the Ouija board explosion in the United States in the late nineteenth century. Those sisters the sisters with the cracked knuckles. This was around the time where the girls invented fairies in their garden and yes. uh, in England. It's uh, everyone was very into the occult around Magic. this time. So it's not unusual it's not uh, you know a specific to this particular part of society although <laughs> the um the cook book does describe alexandra as um so into the occult that she appeared silly even in russia which i really enjoyed <laughs> as a wow quote. harsh i know <laughs> that is a harsh burn on the entire country yeah so they're they're quite good um so they basically fear fan introduces he introduces rasputin to everybody so mm-hmm. rasputin eventually makes his way across russia and makes his way to st petersburg because if you're going to go anywhere then you're going to go to st petersburg yeah um, and it's either that or he spends his life just meandering around rural russia so he rolls up in st petersburg he fear fan thinks he's amazing thinks that he is a genuine man of god thinks that he is um you know even though he is he remains borderline illiterate for most of his life he is not a 
never a reader or a writer, um, but Fiafan is impressed by his grasp of the gospel and his ability to think about theology um, without book learning, essentially, mm-hmm. um, and finds him interesting. And he also, as I say, has this charisma that overtakes people. Like the only thing that can explain the fact that 90% of the people that he meets go, oh my God, you're amazing. Um, even if they don't have sex with him. Um, like a, a lot of people that he meets go, wow, you are fascinating. And I would like to subscribe to your newsletter. And even the ones that invite don't you to dinner. have that response have like the diametrically opposite response. You either are fascinated by him or repulsed. And that yeah. in itself is like, there's a strong character sitting there in the middle of that. Yeah. Um, and so Fearfan takes him around the like salons, the literary and um, you know social salons of St Petersburg. And St Petersburg is aristocratic society is made up effectively of the royal family and other members of the royal family <laughs> and then minor royals. And at this time they are bored and rich and bored and rich and they find Rasputin to be um he marches in he dresses up until like the last year or so of his life he insists upon dressing like a peasant Mm -hmm. um and as we talked about last week peasantry and the aristocracy are not just in different like worlds they are in like different universes despite being in the same country like they just do not come across one another um and they have nothing in common and so he is sort of seen initially as a kind of performing monkey of like this peasant who comes in and talks to them and he kisses them a thing like none of them have ever been fucking touched by a peasant they're not touched by each other like he kisses them on the cheek when he meets them he gives them hugs he doesn't refer to them formally he uses the informal you to everybody Mm -hmm. um and either people men quite often find this very offensive (laughs) and women find this to be brilliant like just the funniest thing that's ever happened and then he starts talking to them about god um and this is a massively religious culture um like hugely hugely religious in very recently before uh Rasputin arrives um nicholas had instituted a new saint into the orthodox church against the wishes of the orthodox priestess but he because he is the head of the church um, and he comes gets his orders directly from god in his estimation he has instituted his own um saint called seraphim and yusupov writes about going to the ceremony whereupon he was sainted Mm -hmm. sanctified um and talks about miracles happening there and there being like 300,000 people and people are brought up to the body and they are cured and people are having hysterical fits and they sure. are brought round and like your standard this, sainty sainty thing your standard sainty experience but this and Yusupov who presents himself as being a very sensible person um talks about this as though it is it's a very moving thing for him to experience and for the whole royal family to experience um and also they consider their God knows how he's related to any of them, but cousin, second cousin, twice removed, mm-hmm. Tsar, is considered to be the voice. Like he answers to God, he is. He talks to God, he is close to God, and God is a big part of of their culture um, and their everyday experience and confession and all the the rest of it. Um, in a way that, like, it's not just parties and 
putting on nice dresses, but mm-hmm. they are also have a spiritual life, um, which Grigori walks right into and says, hello, would you like to hear about Jesus? Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, God loves you and um, you should pray with me. And he's very into a, a particularly aesthetic kind of uh, of religion where he is has a strong belief in prayer but in a specific form of prayer where you have to fast before you pray mm-hmm. um and where you you know where prayer is more than just saying dear god please let me pass this exam but is um a, a, a really important part of uh of religious life mm. and which involves like a whole day's worth of building up to it so yeah, like a proper if- ceremonial yeah and if you can get in with him then he will pray for you and he's going to fast all day to pray for you um and that is very attractive to people like there's a reason christianity took off and there is a reason that aesthetic lifestyles Mm. take off today the reason people are always banging on about clean eating um and it's because people love aestheticism um they just don't call it spiritual anymore (laughs) yeah yeah it feels there's something profound, you know, yeah. about self-denial that feels like it makes things more powerful. So he has this weird glamour, like this anti-glamour, where he rejects everything that they think is good, like hierarchies and uh, washing. Yeah. Um, and and leans into aestheticism and, and he has this way of of talking to them and of being that just really drives them wild um and then they on the 2nd of november uh, 1905 if you remember from last week 1905 was a challenging year mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> for nicholas to have a, um, a little Alexander. bit of a revolution that year there was a little bit of a revolution and in october he had had to back down and say that he would be a uh, that he would let them have a duma um and offer to um like allow some tiny bit of democracy mm-hmm. the month after that he meets Rasputin at dinner a man of god Grigory from Toblosk's province um and he thinks he is fascinating and he so Douglas Smith has the first letter that um Rasputin sent to Nicholas just dated the 5th of November. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to hear it? I definitely want to hear it. I think you'll see why um, Nicholas liked him from literally line one. <laughs> Great emperor, czar, and autocrat of all Russia, greetings <laughs> to you. Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> I like this guy. This guy knows what's going on. May God give you sage advice. When advice comes from God, the soul rejoices, our joy is genuine. But if it is stiff and formal, aka if it comes from ministers, Mm -hmm. then the soul becomes despondent and our head is confused. All of Russia worries. She has descended into a terrible argument. She trembles in joy and rings her bells calling for God. And God sends us mercy and scares our enemies with awe-inspiring threats. So they, the mad ones, are now left with a broken vessel and a foolish head, as the saying goes. The devil has been busy for a long time, but finally ended up flying from under the back porch. 
Such is the power of God and his miracles. Don't disdain our simple words. You as our master and we as your subjects must do our best. We tremble and pray to God to keep you safe from evil, to protect you from all wounds, and now in the future, so that your life will forever flow like a life-giving spring. Yeah, yeah, that's the way to get in. I know. So you are the great autocrat. God is talking to you. Your ministers are not. You should only listen to God. Um, things have been bad, but they're definitely going to get better. Praying for you. Love, Rasputin. It's a classic. <laughs> He's just read some history, you know. He knows what happens to the people who tell the king what he wants to hear and what happens yeah. to the people who do the opposite of that, which is traditionally executions. He gets uh, what Alexandra what Alexandra and Nicholas want to hear yeah. immediately. Yeah. Uh, that they want to hear that they're in charge, that they hear things straight from God, and that, that he shouldn't listen to other, other humans because they're rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. Job done. Uh, Boom. Yeah, job done. And almost immediately, they're like, you're brilliant. Do you want to come over for dinner? (laughs) And he is over, like, days later, he's back over. Nicholas writes that he made a remarkably strong impression on both Her Majesty and me, so that instead of the five minutes our conversation should have lasted, it lasted more than an hour. And then he starts sending him to people who, with injured daughters... So this is the 16th. Uh, he is sending people to with an icon to visit other people. Mm-hmm. He is almost immediately part of the part of the circle and is being sent with a letter of introduction from the empress to other people as he goes around the empire and just becomes the holy man of the aristocracy in general. Basically, except for all of the ones that hated him from the start, which is not yeah. zero. It is a non-zero by a very long way. <laughs> like almost immediately, people are like, "Who is this wanker? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why is the czar suddenly listening to him and not me?" Yeah, um, because the czar has this—he already has this reputation of listening to kind of holy men because of Monsieur Philippe, mm-hmm. which. Makes me think of Black Philip from The Witch. Vivovich. Mm-hmm. Have you seen? I have Vivovich? seen The Vivovich. Yeah. Yeah. So I imagine him as Black Philip for no good reason. Um, <laughs> no, but, I mean um, tracks. I can see that. <laughs> he was eventually persuaded by his ministers to send Philip out of Russia entirely. He was seen as a bad influence. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also believed that um, Philippe had magicked pregnancy into Alexandria. And so they were open to believing in magical men. Gregory is at least Christian, um, so he's harder to, to undermine because he is at least talking about God. Uh, <laughs> but he is still a person who has come out of nowhere, who is a peasant who should be staying in his fucking lane um, (laughs) with his horses and his cows and his mud huts, um, who has rolled up in St. Petersburg, immediately wingled his way into lots of women's houses, starts hanging out with girls a lot, and then is having is clearly having an influence where they are listening to what he's saying. Yeah. Um, And people don't want anyone to be influencing the Tsar except them. They would quite like it if he would stop closing down the diva that he literally just started. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but instead he is writing letters to um writing letters to Rasputin and introducing Rasputin to all his friends and yeah. is 
being a problem. It's a tale as old as time. A new advisor yeah. comes in and everyone hates him. And this one, yeah. you know, has apparently got magical powers, which is a very difficult thing to overcome if you do not have magical it powers. Is. And there is a lot of weird stories that are like, Alexi is their son that is finally born after like four girls. Is finally the answer to the prayers of Alexandra and Nicholas and is going to be the future of Russia, except weeks after Alexei is born, it is very clear that he is a haemophiliac, which comes from uh, Queen Victoria's line. Um, Queen Victoria was a carrier, and they know that this is genetic, so they know it comes from Alexandra's side because a bunch of members of her family um, are haemophiliacs or have died in childbirth, uh, childhood from haemophilia. So he is it's a very, very dangerous thing to be mm-hmm. um and it is um looks a bit like a curse um everybody yeah, knows it's you just, you just don't stop bleeding and no that's a very cursy looking thing it is and they know it is genetic um but also they think that um it is you know they're kind of people think that alexandra is bad luck because she kind of is yeah everything <laughs> goes horribly wrong so everywhere she goes someone her, dies the, the one air she produces just is cursed it's, to bleed forever it's sickly and pale and bleeds constantly yeah um yeah but rasputin does have a surprising number of incidents where he is brought in and he prays over Alexei and Alexei gets better. Yeah. Uh, and like a lot incidents. of the incidents there are maybe explanations for. Like there were there are theories that part of it was just that he made all the other doctors go away and gave Alexei a chance to just like sleep and rest properly. Yeah. Um, also he he told the Tsar and Tsarina to refuse to give him aspirin, which was the other doctors yeah. were prescribing and which we now know can is a blood thinning agent so is you should not ha- you should not have aspirin if you have hemophilia <laughs> yeah, that's the worst possible thing <laughs> it's the worst possible thing but it had just been invented yeah and they did yeah. not know that at the time um, but there's one incident in particular where he was where there just seems to be no explanation for it he wasn't even there recovery he was miles and miles away and all he, he did was, was in say Siberia. he would pray um, yeah. he was at home in Siberia and um, and he just prayed and Alexei, who was expected to die, just didn't. Yeah. And, um, and so, and that really feeds Alexandra's belief in him as a holy man. And it's Alexandra more than anyone who adores him. And her friend, uh, Anna Vrulyubova, who is also obsessed, completely obsessed with um, yeah. with Rasputin. And the two, who, and she's a very close friend of, uh, she's a lady in waiting of uh, Alexandra, and the two of them are just head over heels, and everything that he does is yet more proof that he is holy and and miraculous, um, which is uh, strange to think about. They really do think that he is amazing, and that everything that he says is the words come straight from God. <laughs> Which I think, at least in Alexandra's case, like that is understandable. Like if you genuinely have no other explanation for your son recovering from, you know, a horrible attack of hemophilia, except for Rasputin, then I mean, of yeah. course you're going to be believe anything. He did a miracle. <laughs> yeah, um, and when they write about him, they write the like when I saw him, 
I felt a gentleness and a warmth radiating from him. The children jump all over him and they run around and they are like, he's good with the kids and they feel this warmth mm. from him, basically. Yeah. Um, some of them find him over familiar. Olga Alexandrovna, um, who is Nicholas's sister, um, thinks that he is deeply embarrassing because he first time that they meet, he is leaping about with the children um, and then he just starts asking her loads of questions and is like, are you happy? Do you love your husband? Why don't you have any children? Why are you here? What are you <laughs> going to do after this? What was the last time you had sex? Like, just loads of questions that are super personal the first time they've met and she is the Tsar's sister, like... Uh, <laughs> yeah, those are some lines you're crossing <laughs> yeah and either as i say some people find this that's his approach he will give people a kiss and then be like hello are you married have you had sex well why don't you have any children um mm-hmm. like really impertinent um and some people find this hilarious and delightful and are like oh my god i'm just going to tell you all of my problems and the others are like uh do you want to go fuck yourself <laughs> yeah there's no middle ground here you either love it or you hate it and I can see why. Yeah. Uh, you either really love it or you really hate it. Um, I feel like I would be like, mm, no, thank you. Um, yeah, not for me. But I can totally see why in a world where they're all just very rich and nobody's ever made them uncomfortable before, half of them would be like, yeah. do you want to hear about sex with my husband? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he's like, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, he worms his way right in there. Yeah. Uh, and it is not long before um, he does go back and forth. Like he travels about quite a lot. It doesn't like immediately move in, but very without before long he has moved fully full time into St Petersburg. He's spending almost all of his time with either the Tsarina or the Tsar and Tsarina or the other members of the royal family, and just hanging out mm-hmm. and having a good time. And all of the stories from both Yusupov and Maria's books are like just people coming in and out of each other's houses all the fucking time. Um, and sometimes they're like, they'll go into his visiting with one person and then somebody else comes to visit. So he leaves that one person in one room and then goes into another room and has tea with this other person leaving. And they're just like, how many, one, how many tea rooms do you have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And two, like, you can't just, don't, would you not bring them together? No, you're just going to leave that person in there to stare out of a window? They've not even, not even got Twitter to go on. Like, I mean, I guess it depends on what they've come here for, because, like, if they're coming to visit you, are they coming to hang out or are they coming to, like, pray about their problems? I think bits of both. Like, some yeah. people are coming to pray about your problems and some people aren't. Um, yeah. Yeah, but Yusupov spends quite a lot of time with Rasputin before he decides to murder him, or in his version <laughs> of events after he's decided to murder him. Um, they just hang out, like, a lot. Um, yeah, like, he uses wanting to see Rasputin for his problems as an excuse to get close to him so that he can murder him. Yeah, or just so they can hang out. So we'll talk a little bit about... Um, about Yusupov, uh, and then we'll bring them together. So, mm-hmm. Yusupov, the suggestion from a lot, including one of Yusupov's um, police interviews after the fact, is that potentially the problem that he was attempting to talk to Rasputin about was the fact that he was either gay or bisexual. And he was hoping that um, Rasputin could basically pray it out of him. And that part of what his 
his reason for killing him was that he uh, failed to do that. Um, his unnatural tendencies, as the way that Yusupov put it, which we won't agree with. Um, uh, and Rasputin said to Yusupov, we'll fix you for good. We just need to visit the Roma and there you'll see some pretty women and your illness will disappear forever. It's, uh, I believe, a standard method used in conversion camps today yes. still, probably, I assume. I have, just pretty, I've... Here are pretty women. Everything I know about conversion camps comes from uh, the recent arguments that there were in Northern Ireland about whether conversion should be legal or not. And But I'm a cheerleader, one of the greatest films yeah. ever made. 100%. Yeah, that's all of my knowledge. About <laughs> um, sounds rubbish, unless it's But I'm a cheerleader. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, but, okay. So Yusupov is brilliant. He is a prince. He is a younger brother of... You know, some relation. Um, I could not physically keep track. I've had enough trouble keeping track of the Julio Claudians. I'm not there getting so, involved there in There are the so many Romanovs, and all you need to know is that he is one of them. He is one of them. He is very rich, and he has flair. Um, <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> he, um, as the younger brother, is he's very kind of pretty, and kind of small featured and small boned. Um, and as a as a young man, as a very young man, like a teenager, um, his brothers and their his friends t- like to dress him up as a girl and take him out clubbing with them. There were even instances where he would perform in drag. Yes, and the only way people and in front of family friends who sometimes would figure it out because they recognised his mother's necklace that he was yes. wearing. Um, at one point, he claims this is from his version of events and notably in uh Yusupov's version of events he is the best at everything he ever does um <laughs> including uh-huh. i believe him i really cannot emphasize enough how much time he spends talking about interior design um <laughs> but including all of his interior design but he says that he um got a job as a singer as a female singer <laughs> um and basically had to turn the job down because he was a teenaged boy. <laughs> but he has a great time in drag, doing drag performances, um, dance, like wearing his mother's jewellery, singing, having a brilliant time. If he lived today, he would be on Drag Race. He would probably he would do win really it. well. He'd have loads. He'd be like the Aquaria of his time. <laughs> and he would do great. Unfortunately, he lived in late 19th, century early 20th century russia where they are wildly homophobic mm-hmm. um to an astonishing degree i have to say that rasputin uh, the man behind the myth maria's book uh takes it really really far uh-huh. <laughs> uh like she is wow she moved to la um and became a lion tamer um in her... you are kidding i'm not kidding i'm not kidding at all. you have kept that one under your hat this whole time yeah she was a cabaret dancer and then she became a lion tamer and traveled with circuses taming lions and then she <laughs> I love this so much i didn't think there was gonna be more that i loved about this no. but yeah no carry on um, tell me about maria the lion, lion tamer and uh, then she moved to la uh, and lived in retirement in la basically living off of being Rasputin's daughter. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. And 
so quite how she was living in like mid-century LA while being an overt homophobe and even in cabaret like she could not have been happy (laughs) no um anyway she uh this okay so this is that's Yusupov's young life he's having a brilliant time uh he punces around Europe constantly like he's always off to Paris off to St Petersburg off to um nipping into Kiev going to Norway hanging around um until he meets the head of one of the Oxford colleges um and Actually, it might be Cambridge, apologies. Um, and nips off to... They're basically the same, I think. Go to university in England. Um, it is Oxford. Uh, so he go- decides to go to university in England, basically because the head of one of the colleges says, oh, I come to university in England. Um, and he goes, all right, that sounds fun. So that's how he gets into Oxford. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at which point he immediately moves to London. He does all of his work, Oxford career in London. Sure. I mean, why go to oxford to stay in oxford i guess i know um why do that when you could be hanging around having a lot more fun um, convincing everyone to have black carpet he does convince everybody to have black carpets he destroys relationships with his black carpets um <laughs> he purchases moves into decorates and then moves out of a number of a number of flats around London. He flips. He flips before flipping is cool. Yeah, he does. Um, but he just really likes decorating. Like, oh, yeah. just absolutely loves it. Uh, he purchases a lot of animals. He buys a bull, four cows, six pigs, and a large number of roosters, hens, and rabbits uh, to ship them to Russia for his dad. The larger animals he puts in crates and sends them on a boat. Um, but he takes the smaller ones around with him. And whenever he's in a hotel, he just lets them out. You know, it's nice to have some chicken friends. Free-range chickens and rabbits wandering around. He finds this so funny. Not great for the cleaning stuff, but... (laughs) No, I feel like when he turns up places, like, staff members are like, oh, for God's sake. (laughs) Yeah. This is one of my favourite bits uh, of the entire book, which is when he... um, gets back to Russia during the summer holidays and um, his father is so delighted with the cows that he's bought that he asks him to send to buy some more and so he writes a telegram in English and it reads, please send me one man cow and three Jersey women (laughs) (laughs) Um, which uh, was published in the papers because everyone in England thought it was so very funny um, he then mo- he spends some time in England he's prancing around in England he buys a cow he wins another cow in a bet uh, he buys a cow because they're driving through the countryside and the cow looks in his window and he's so taken with its eyes that he purchases it immediately someone then tries oh, to beautiful. steal the cow so he steals it back um, there's just this is what his life is for about 200 pages of his biography and then his brother dies which brings the carefree life of the second son to an end. It does. And then he has to come back to Russia and join the army and get a job. And all of a sudden he has to be responsible and he hate, get, has to get a wife. Which... His wife seems hilarious. His wife, Irina, is great. I love his wife. I've pulled out some quotes from letters that she wrote to him when, when the plot was afoot. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's delightful. I love her. Irina. Irina. Yeah, seems like a babe. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> uh, 
we are going to talk about her. My internet keeps cutting out because it doesn't want me to talk about Rena, but we're going to <laughs> whether it wants it or not. She's just too cool for the internet. Yeah. Um, okay, what arena have you got? Well, all, what I've got principally is just her attitude on the developing of a plot to kill Rasputin, um, <laughs> which is basically was happening when she was out of town, which she was not happy about. Um, <laughs> she wrote a letter to Yusupov saying, <laughs> and I love this, this is her letter, and I quote, sent on the 25th of November, Thanks for your insane letter. I didn't understand <laughs> half of it. I see that you're planning to do something wild. Please be careful and st- don't stick your nose into all that dirty business. The dirtiest thing is that you have decided to, to do it all without me. I don't see how I can take part in it now since it's all arranged. Who is M. Goal? I just realized what this means and who they are while writing this. In a word, be careful. I see from your letter that you're in a state of wild enthusiasm and ready to climb a wall. I'll be in Petrograd on the 12th or 13th, so don't dare to do anything without me or else I won't come at all. Love and kisses. May the Lord protect you. See, the best thing about this is that um, Yusupov's uh, version of this is, I talked to Irina and she agreed with me wholeheartedly. (laughs) (laughs) Just goes to show that um, Yusupov could not be trusted in any way, (laughs) shape or form. No. Um, I just, but just really adore the idea that she was like, don't do this, and how dare you do it without me? Being convinced of the necessity for action, I discussed the matter with Arena and found she agreed with me completely. <laughs> uh, we lie, you version support. of that story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he is uh, basically Yusupov, having been forced to get involved in public life um, miserably because he would have been much happier prancing around Europe being fancy forever. Mm-hmm. Um, Wouldn't we all? decides that it is very necessary to get rid of Rasputin, along with a bunch of other people. He's not alone by any stretch of the imagination. Um, because... Nicholas has gone off to lead the army by himself, a thing that everyone thinks is utter madness just the worst idea everyone has ever had um in at the end like in the 1917 uh in the first war everything's going badly so what we need is a man who thinks that god talks to him out there um and who has no idea how to command an army has no idea and has no confidence in his ability to command an army either. Mm. Uh, back at home, Alexandra and Rasputin are spending all of their time together. The Prime Minister is of German extraction. The Tsarina is German. Um, and they have just recently changed the name of St. Petersburg to Petrograd because everybody currently hates Germans so much that <laughs> uh, St. Petersburg sounded too German. So... Uh, and nobody trusts her and people think that um, she is working to undermine the country and along with the Prime Minister and they also think that she is relying far too heavily on Rasputin and she is doing things like everything that Rasputin tells her she is writing it down and sending it to Nicholas as advice she is sending him like relics of Rasputin's as uh, things to keep him safe because she's so worried about him mm-hmm. um, and she is ruling the country badly with a guy that 50% of people think is a mad sex monk and <laughs> 50% of people think is the literal devil and about 50 aristocratic women think is Jesus 
which is a bad atmosphere. But they just basically a bunch of aristocrats of nobles decide that they need to get rid of Rasputin, that he is going to destroy the country, that he's going to make them lose the war, and probably he is going to bring the whole country down um, in some way or another. Yusupov claims that they tried to offer him a bribe to go back to Siberia, but I don't know if I believe him. Uh, and then they come up with this plan, which I assume they all thought, because uh, they didn't read enough murder mystery novels, was brilliant. I mean, I guess it was pre-Agatha Christie. <laughs> well, I guess she started writing during World War One, so they just yeah. maybe hadn't had time for a Russian translation. They hadn't got around to it, but... Um, so there are five guys who are involved in the final plot. Um, Felix Yusupov, who's the prince. Um, mm-hmm. Dmitry Pavlovich. Uh, Ivan Sukhatin, who is a, a cavalry officer. He doesn't get mentioned very often. Um, and Vladimir Purishkovich, uh, mm-hmm. who is a member of the Duma. And then a doctor called Stanislav Lazavert. Um and they have all at various times given their version of events. And then Maria has her version. Yusupov and Purishkovich overlap in most details. This is also, I feel like we should, before we get into the murder proper, that they seem to have been spurred into action by Nicholas proroguing the Duma again. Yes, um. again. <laughs> and the Prime Minister had been murdered because his house was bombed. Which was also bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So they decide that it's necessary to get rid of Rasputin. I don't know that they themselves are very clear on why they feel they have to murder him. I think they just kind of... The situation in St. Petersburg is so panicky and nobody knows what's going on and the Tsar isn't there and the Tsarina is being bonkers. Mm-hmm. And like that that's where they go to really early on in the proceedings. <laughs> so they are all involved. Um, it's a long-term process of them talking to each other and talking about it, during which time Yusupov is hanging out with Rasputin in order to kind of befriend him. Um, he thinks, he writes that he thinks that Rasputin is literally Satan, a demon, um, and his out to hurt him (laughs) Um, no one can be mad at you if the person you've murdered is literally the devil well this is the thing you see so this is where we get to the actual question that we were asked which is uh, what's the story of um, Rasputin's death and the story that most people know is a combination of Yusupov's own version and Maria's version Um, and Maria has some bizarre additions but the story that Yusupov says tells is that he spends lots of time befriending Rasputin so that Rasputin will trust him so that he can invite him to a dinner at his house to introduce uh, Rasputin to his wife. Apparently Rasputin does not know that Arena is in Kiev. He picks up Rasputin at midnight to come to the party. The party, quote unquote, is in a cellar in uh, Yusupov's castle. <laughs> It's palace. So he lives in a palace, obviously. Um, and he's set up this cellar about two pages. A palace that is a, across the road from a police yeah, Directly station, across like the road, yep. Set the scene with that. He spends about two pages describing the decor and <laughs> how he has set up the 
Uh, and like there's a samovar over here and I got some nice chairs and over here I put a, like loads of it. Um, bizarre, bizarre <laughs> behavior. But he, so they invite him around. He says that nobody is around, but his wife is coming and his wife has friends upstairs in the drawing room. There's been a ladies party and a gentleman's yes, party. Yes, the ladies party, uh, which is not actually a ladies party, it's actually the other conspirators are playing Yankee Doodle Dandy on the gramophone. <laughs> and mm-hmm. having a ball so everything i feel you need to know about everything that is about to happen is encapsulated in that song <laughs> that's the song they chose to put on um he takes rasputin downstairs where previously they have prepared four glasses for wine two of which are poisoned with cyanide and a, a pile of cakes which also are poisoned yes. with so cyanide. So there's pink cakes and chocolate cakes and the pink cakes have been poisoned with cyanide. He persuades Rasputin to eat the cakes and drink some wine and drink more wine and drink more wine. Um, and he keeps drinking and drinking and drinking. By this time, according to Yusupov, he has drunk and eaten enough cyanide to kill like 10 horses. And he is basically fine. He eventually kind of keels over but just won't die basically so Yusupov runs upstairs um and goes he's not dying he's not dying um so they get a revolver and go downstairs and shoot him a few times a couple of times a couple times he goes down there's blood everywhere the doctor Lazavet goes over and says yeah he's not moving he's dead um so they lock the door and go upstairs to have a drink they then go okay we've got to deal with the body so they go downstairs they kind of poke at his body a bit at which point he leaps up and starts trying to struggle um, and fight Yusupov and this is the bit where Yusupov is like he is a literal demon (laughs) he is not just the vision of of satan he's literally satan that i am fighting with and he won't die and so he fights his way out and rasputin goes running down the road and they then shoot at him two more times and this is again opposite a police station in the middle of the night it's like two o'clock in the morning and they have now shot rasputin in the dead of night in front of a police station a policeman comes over and is like, is everything all right? And they go, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. They then take the body, wrap it up in linen, and Yusupov kind of keels over and goes into a faint. So the other two, um, Parishkovich and um, Lazavert, and uh, take him in, they wrap him up, take him to the river their plan is that they're going to throw his body overboard wrapped up in chains and with um like to weigh it down uh they throw the body over the bridge and immediately realize that they have forgotten to weigh it down uh they turn around and see that all of the chains are still in the car (laughs) so they throw the chains over they then go to close the boot again and realize that his shoes are in there so they then have to throw the shoes overboard (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they then get back in the car, finally free of everything, of the person they have just murdered in basically front of a p- policeman, and try to drive back to Yusupov's palace, whereupon the car breaks down. They eventually make it back at six o'clock in the morning where Yusupov is lying on a couch fanning himself. 
And the policeman that they have said, nothing's happening, I don't know what you're talking about, has immediately gone to the police station and said, I'm pretty sure something's happening over there. Um, (laughs) And while they are scrubbing blood off of the cellar stairs, the police turn up and say, did you murder Rasputin in here? (laughs) So that's Yusupov's version of events. Purishkevich's version of events is broadly similar, except he and Lazavert and the guy that they allegedly got the poison from all say that there was no actual poison. The autopsy also says the there was no actual poison. The autopsy also says there's no actual poison. So Maklovov, who is the guy that they got the powder from, says that he chickened out and he um, gave them random powder because he didn't have any cyanide. Um, Perishkovich claims that he swapped it with aspirin that he had crushed up. And Lazarus uh-huh. claims that he swapped it, <laughs> which leads us to the potential that there was never any cyanide, but that it was switched three times <laughs> by people thinking that they were switching it for something else. We really need and deserve a Death of Stalin style movie about yes, this. Yes, we do, because it is absurd. Um, with them all listening to absurd. Yankee Doodle Dandle, each one thinking that the other one... <laughs> gave um one of them each of them thinking that the other one is poisoning him and thinking they're the only one who hasn't been involved in the poison part you know what it's it's pretty rude though it's landing you poor yusupov right in it he thinks he's just gonna give this guy some wine and cakes and then job done and instead he has to like do a lot of shooting and fighting it's 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 just a bit it's a bit impolite it is impolite maria's version of events is that um, Yusupov was in love with Rasputin. I mean, in Maria's version of events, literally everyone in the world was in love with Rasputin. So that's fine. And the reason that he was coming around all the time was because he was attempting to seduce Rasputin. Rasputin, however, is so powerfully heterosexual that it would be physically impossible for him to... Mm. um, Of course. (laughs) To ever, ever have anything to do with the man. The turning point for him is for maria sorry is that um yusupov turns up at you at rasputin's flat to see him for tea and then takes off all of his clothing mm-hmm. and lies stark naked on the couch there was no doubt what he had in mind and papa was dismayed to see that all his efforts had been in vain i'm going to skip this bit because it is literally like a paragraph of him talking about how disgusted he is by the concept of homosexuality. It goes on for ages. Um, anyway, the, Yusupov stands up and tries to go towards Rasputin. Rasputin shoves him over and then runs away. Uh, Felix puts on his clothes and they have an argument where Rasputin tells him off as though he were a disobedient stable boy. <laughs> and Felix runs away swearing he will never return. And although Papa did not know it, more than hurt feelings were at stake. The die had been cast. Um, so her version is that he's in love with him he is rebuffed and so he decides that he needs to kill him in revenge for hurting his feelings sure so her version is that they set up the party that they're inviting him to they pick up um yusupov takes him to his house and then basically he's just yusupov is just flirting with him I mean, I do believe that yusupov is the sort of person that was constantly always flirting with everyone so that might be true suspect it would be um, so this is her version of how it went down um 
in her version, Rasputin didn't eat sweets, so he would never eat the cakes, but he would have a lovely glass of wine. Um, he feels heady as a result of the heat and the wine, and Felix again and again filled Papa's glass, ever moving closer to Papa, and then saying in a soft voice, his breath on Papa's neck, Grigory. Suddenly, Papa jumped to his feet. I've got to leave. Obviously, she isn't coming. He walked towards the clothes closet for his, co- for his cloak. Felix, not to be denied, followed closely behind him. No, no, Gregory, don't go. I'm sure she'll be here in a minute. Uh, this is a bit where it goes into, like, amazing full fiction. He runs upstairs to go and say nothing's going to plan. He gets a revolver. He comes down the stairs. Um, he tells Rasputin that he has to take a good look at the crucifix before he goes. Papa turned and there was a look of tender surrender in his eyes, as if he knew that the trap had finally slammed shut. Papa looked up and suddenly two strangers appeared from the upper part of the house. At first, Papa couldn't tell who they were, and then he recognised Dimitri and Dr. Lazavert. And yeah, you're like, okay, cool, right, uh-huh. where'd you get this information from? Mm-hmm. Um, then they gang rape him. Sure. Then, having used him sexually... They shoot him directly into the centre of his head. They don't think that he's dead, so they stab at him for ages and then uh, they cut off his penis and throw it away. Right. I mean, that's thorough. Yes. It is at that point that they leave and come back and then wrap up his body um, and throw it into the river. And then she says... And thus passed Grigory Efimovich Rasputin, who died not of bullet wounds nor mutilation, though either of these could have eventually resulted in his death, but of drowning. For it was found that his wrists, which the plotters had bound when they tied him in the cloth, were badly scarred by ropes, evidence he had struggled free to free himself once the cold water had revived him. And that is where you get the... And the kind of very widespread story that he was still alive when they threw him in the water and that there was water in his lungs. According to Douglas Smith, there was the original autopsy report was lost years later. But the coroner gave two interviews from which we know that um, his face had been beaten, probably post-mortem. He had been stabbed. He... His genitals were intact and undamaged. He had been shot three times, um, once in the side of his chest, once in his stomach, um, and then one in the middle of his head, mm-hmm. which was probably the third shot. There was no sign of poison and there was no water in the lungs. Well, there you go. So what likely happened is that quite possibly Yusupov thought that he was poisoning him because nobody told him that they were that literally all of them had replaced the poison with something not poisonous. Yeah, that they he was just drinking loads of aspirin, which possibly would have hurt his kidneys after a while. Yeah, um, and that they panicked, they shot him. He didn't go down. He ran, so they shot him again, um, and eventually got him in the head, uh, which did kill him. But yeah. outside, um, he probably wasn't literally Satan. Probably not. It probably wasn't Jesus either. No. Uh, (laughs) And he didn't drown and his penis was not cut off. Not that Maria would believe this because... (laughs) Okay, I'm going to do the epilogue because it's so good. In the epilogue, years later, she is in Paris and a mysterious man approaches her and says, 
I want you to come and meet my mother. She is from the old country and she is, you know, she was a follower. She loved your father and she wants to talk to you. And so she says, okay. Um, And they go on this mysterious journey where she's like, I'm being taken around the houses um, and I'm being like, it's very clear that they are trying to drive me to, so I don't really know where I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And they... (laughs) take her to meet this little old lady who is an like this ancient russian woman who is now living in um in paris and she says um that she loved rasputin and that she believes that rasputin was a, a great man and a reincarnation of christ and mm-hmm. um, that she had been a maid at the hotel europe in st petersburg and had served him and she had also served in Yusupov's house uh, and that she had rescued <laughs> rescued Rasputin's penis <laughs> when it had been thrown away uh, <laughs> George walked across the bureau and took up a polished wooden box that lay there beneath Rasputin's picture it was about 18 inches long and 6 wide with an inlaid silver crest on the top his grandmother nodded weakly and brought it to me Impassively, he raised the lid and I saw what looked like a blackened, overripe banana about a <laughs> foot long <laughs> and resting on velvet cloth. My grandmother says it is the Holy Father's sexual organ, he says without a smile. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then they uh, they talk about that. Um, uh-huh. She talks about it as if uh, that she um, witnessed what happened um, at the palace and that's how she knows about it and that uh, she talked about it as though she were an eyewitness to the crucifixion. She then says, do you believe it? Believe what? That Rasputin was Christ? Yes. Do you? <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, that's what happened to his foot-long penis. <laughs> That seems... I'm going to go out on a limb and say that seems unlikely. Uh, um, yes. Yeah. I think, yes, uh, that she might... As I say, she has a limited grasp on reality. Yeah. <laughs> I would say, d- d- you know, deliberately so. I think she's choosing to have the grasp of reality that she has. Yeah. And I yeah. guess it made her happy. So... I don't... That's fine. I don't it made her very angry. She's quite cross in all of it. Um, she's very cross when people say bad things about her father. Um, but it doesn't really work out well for anyone because no, they immediately know. Like, before his body's even been found, they're like, oh, yeah, Rasputin's been murdered and Yusupov did it. The best thing about this part is where the, the day that Yusupov has following the assassination, <laughs> which is that he goes around to everyone he can get to and tells them this long, elaborate story about how he spent his evening, which is that... So long. <laughs> is, which is that he was having a party and Rasputin kept calling him up to ask him to come with him to see the room of the people. Um, and he kept saying, no, I can't go. I'm having a party now. And that was the only time he heard from him. And then, then at some point in the evening, one of his friends shot a dog. And yeah. he goes around... All of St. Petersburg to tell this story so that everyone knows that someone shot a dog at his house last night and that he did not go with Rasputin to see uh, the Romani people. Yeah, and he he tries to see the 
Tsarina to tell her this story. He writes letters to people telling them this involved story. And it is a classic, put in too many details in A Massive Lie. <laughs> Yeah. This is the bit where Douglas Smith says that um, he is a monstrous coward because he said if he had said, yeah, I killed him, this is why, from the start, then people would people would respect him more. <laughs> <laughs> but as it is, he goes around attempting to cover it up and then he uses, he does that like thing that you get in old books a lot where people are aristocrats so nobody can do anything to them and they say, oh, you're under house arrest. And he says, my wife is the niece of of the emperor i don't think i am and they go Mm -hmm. okay sorry sir um (laughs) and they keep trying to like arrest him or put him under house arrest and he's like i'm a prince who do you think you are and then he eventually manages to get out of st petersburg and go to kiev where they attempt to put him under house arrest so he has to flee there and go to denmark i think um and then germany and he basically has to bounce about because everyone's like did you you're a murderer are you aware of that <laughs> he's like how dare you yeah and he and then eventually he's like this is then the revolution happens very swiftly after that mm-hmm. like a month later which kind of takes the heat off of him but it means he loses everything him and yeah. his family lose absolutely everything and as a, and all he has left is this story um yeah. so he and an swiftly eye for turns interior it. design and an eye for an interior. He could have gone into interior design. I have to have. say that none of his descriptions, they're all a bit much. Um, he would I don't know that he'd fit in like to any kind of minimalism. No, um, no. I don't know that he'd be, are... he'd, his fashions of the time would be would be popular now. But he'd, he doesn't Maximalism, need... that's what it's yeah. called. He'd yeah. be very, very that. But he a could be of... in... A lot of chandeliers, a lot of lush carpets in dark colours. And candelabras and he likes crystal and knickknacks yeah. and gold things and embroidered softboxes, ashtrays, topaz and jade. Like, he loves stuff. Yeah. Um, he just loves stuff. So he could have, but instead he wrote a series of biographies in which he sold his story as a murderer, which really, really upset the other assassins, the other murderers. Because they had made a pact that they would not talk about it. And then... <laughs> I don't... I feel like if you make a pact with Yusupov not to talk about something, yeah. you only have yourself to blame when he ends up... Like, this is, he, not, like, this is not a man who was built for keeping quiet. No, but this is a man who bought a cow because he liked its eyes. <laughs> he lived with chickens because he thought it was funny. Yeah. Um, and I found... So there was an article from 1923... When um, Lazavert went to, ended up in New York, he managed to get out of Russia and ended up in New York. Um, and he gave an interview to the New York Times um, about his involvement with murdering, where he was very unkeen on talking about the murder um, <laughs> and tries to talk around it very much and was much more interested in telling people that things aren't very going very well in Russia. Um, <laughs> which is which nobody wrong. cares about. Everybody just wants to know about Rasputin. Mm-hmm. Um Purishkevich did write about it and broadly agrees with um, Yusupov's version of events, but without the kind of monstrous, I am literally Satan and I'm not dying. Um, (laughs) And it's a bit more circumspect, but he never spoke to Yusupov again because he was so shocked that he was talking about it all the time. Um, (laughs) And when they came across each other in Paris, he would refuse to talk to him because 
he found it so upsetting and um, none of the rest I, of that them. is as good a reason as any to give someone the silent treatment forever i like i like to picture that scene like it's a lavish sort of parisian party and he's just like i'm not talking to you i'm not talking to you you won't stop talking about that murder we did together <laughs> Yeah, and but it does seem like that's what Eusebot did, just kind of rolled up at house parties and was like, who wants to hear about Rasputin's penis? <laughs> Look, when your livelihood was predicated on the existence of a monarchy that gets revolutioned out of existence and you have nothing left but to shift for yourself as best you can, I think selling your murder story is fine. What you know, I mean, You've got to pay your bills. He does have to pay his bills, and he had, I suspect, very large bills. Yeah, I would imagine a man of expensive tastes. Yeah. And yeah, so that's the that's the story. That's the official-ish story of uh, Rasputin's death, the multiple versions thereof. <laughs> Most likely, everybody chickened out except Yusupov, um, and eventually they had to shoot him in the head after a bit of a tussle. Yeah. Um, next week, we're going to talk about the conspiracy theories around it. And the involvement of the British. Yeah. And all of the other ludicrous stories that come out about, uh, that people kind of make up about situations. And the kind of New World Order uh, stories and the Satanist slash Freemasonry stories. Because <laughs> there's always a Freemason somewhere. There's always room for a Freemason. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you can make your own mind up. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be great. It'll be great. And then we'll talk about something that isn't Rasputin. Yeah. Um, Rasputin's fun. It's a lot to, he is really fun. There's so much. his three episodes, I think. I mean, and this is a long episode too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least a good chunk of that is when the internet dropped out. So That's true. But no. still, um, still, we could talk about it forever. <laughs> uh, but until next week, um, where can you find us, Janina? You can find us at history60.com, which has the show notes and ways to support us if you are able to and would like to do that and links to us and basically everything that you could want yeah and you can go to our ko-fi and you can find our twitter there and yeah everything is there now um and it's much easier than uh, having it like four different places (laughs) um and some a spammer emailed us to say that our website was very good um so that's good Yeah, he wanted us to say it was very good, but it wasn't being served on the first place of Google, which I did then check, and he was lying. Yeah, he definitely was. If you Google History is Sexy, you do get just us, basically, so that's fine. Um, And we now have six supporters, so thank you very much to all of you. Thank you. Um, All of the ones that are coming up as new, just say somebody, so um, I can't thank you by name, but um, to the people... To you people, you someones, um, I appreciate you. <laughs> yeah, that's very, very kind. The most recent so is Freaky Doug. So thank you, Freaky Doug. <laughs> thank you, Freaky Doug. And yeah, thank you to all of you. Um, and next time, uh, we'll talk about some more Rasputin. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.